All right, well, we are going to be in Mark chapter 7 this morning. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. And God, I am, I am mindful this morning that um, how easy it is to take for granted things that we have heard many times. But God, I pray that we would not. Because God, we do not fully understand all that you are and all that you have done and all that you have called us to be and all that we will be. Please help protect us, God. Protect us from being complacent or to, for, from settling. Protect us, God, from our own self-made religion and let us see you clearly and to follow you passionately. We desperately need your help. Holy Spirit, would you empower us and give us minds that would hear and understand and hearts that would love your word and that we would be able to go and trust and believe and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week is kind of a part two, in, in a sense, of, um, from, from last week's message. And so if you hear things in this message and you wonder, um, you know, if you're trying to figure out how that connects maybe to the passage right before uh, this, then you're welcome to check that out online and, and maybe that'll fill in some of the blanks. But I do want to do a little bit of a recap as a way of kind of setting the stage for what we're going to be dealing with today. And so if you'll remember from last week, um, Jesus is confronting. Uh, the Pharisees on the issue of being clean and unclean. What does that mean? And so um, what happened was Jesus' disciples had come in and they ate without washing their hands and, and that was a big no-no. And so questions about what the, the law was and what does it mean to be clean all came to a head. And if you remember that we talked about how um, there was the Torah, which was the law of what God actually commanded, and then there was the Mishnah, which was oral tradition that people had passed down on, on how to actually observe the commandment. So the actual commandment of God is what God commanded us to do. But what people did was they looked at that and they're like, well, that's, that's pretty difficult to understand. I don't know how we can do that. And so, you know what? We will create um, our own rules and our own laws so that um, as long as people do these things, um, then they're good. So we talked about how that happened with the Sabbath. And so uh, we know that a commandment from God is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so like, well, what does that actually mean? Like, how do we actually do that? And so they said, okay, no, we got you. And so they created all of these different rules and these different laws of how to obey that. And so, you know, you can take this many steps, but not this many. You can do this thing, but you can't do that thing. And so um, they, they would create these behavioral checkboxes for these heart issues and these heart commandments that God had given. And we discovered how that is actually something that we do a lot, that we create our own checkboxes um, as a way of kind of protecting us from breaking God's commandment because we don't fully grasp and understand what God is actually asking us to do. We try to simplify it and, and create these checkboxes. So we talked about how we know, we all know that we are commanded to worship the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. But that is a very difficult thing to define. 
What does that actually look like? How does one worship God fully in that way? Like, how do I actually measure that? And so what many of us do, have done in our culture is we say, okay, well, I, I can't measure all of that, so I'll make this simple, and I'll just define it by these simple things that I know I can do. So I um, attend church regularly, I give to the church, and, and I serve. And so I created these boxes that allow me or that, that serve as um, this substitute really for God's commandment. And what Jesus is saying to them is, hey, you're, you're developing these checkboxes, but they're your own creation. And that in doing that, you, you create these checkboxes and you obsess over them so much that it actually leads you away from the real commandment of God. But then he goes a step further and he says, not only does it lead you away but it actually becomes the instrument by which you break the commandment of God. And so I have my worship checkbox. And if I, as long as I'm doing those things, if anybody ever asks me about, are you worshiping God with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Are you worshiping God with all that you are and all that you have? Well, if my answer is, well, yeah, because I go to church regularly and I give to the church and I serve and so therefore, I've checked, checked, checked. And so yes, I can answer that I have obeyed the commandment of God. And so my focus comes so on what I'm actually asking or what I've created for myself to do that I've forgotten what he's commanded in the first place. But not only that, if you hear what I'm saying in that, not only am I being led astray from it, but I'm actually breaking it because all of those statements are all things that I'm doing. Right? So if you ask me, Jay, are you worshiping God fully? Yes, I go to church every week. I serve. I give my money to God. Well, what is that except for self-exaltation and self-worship? Now all of a sudden I'm super confident in all the things that I'm doing and that's why I know I'm obeying this commandment. And so that checkbox not only leads me away, but it actually becomes the thing by which I violate the commandment to worship God and God alone because I'm worshiping myself and my checkboxes. And Jesus says, this is all worthless. It's done in vain. These things will lead you not only away, but it will make you break the commandments of God. And so then in verse 14, we see him, where we pick up this passage here, we see him call the people together it says, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So pause there. He, when he's gathering them together there, he's, he's talking to them about all these things, and, and then he gathers them together, and this is kind of like his closing statement to the crowd. And he says, come on, all of you, get in here. It's, it's, a, it's a plea. He's begging them, like, listen to me. Please understand what I'm saying. Like he's just confronted the Pharisees and all of these things that they are heaping on these people and he's calling all the people together. He says, listen to me, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is earth-shattering for the people who are hearing this. This would be kind of mind-blowing. He's just confronted the religious leaders on what they're doing, and he's telling them, like, all of those things that they're telling you are making you unclean, they're not. Because those things can't make you unclean. Think of all the things that he's pushing against right here in this moment. All the things that we've already talked about in Mark, about touching a leper makes you unclean. Jesus said, no, it doesn't. 
And he touches lepers and he makes them clean, heals them. They say, we can't, can't come near a dead body. That'll make you unclean. Jesus says, no, it doesn't. He raises dead men to life. They say, we can't eat the wrong foods. That, that makes you, that'll make you unclean. Jesus says, no, it doesn't. Nothing that goes into you can defile you. So Jesus, in this statement, sets people free from their man-made checkboxes. He's telling them, you don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Their whole lives, they've been listening to the Pharisees create these check, these check boxes. And then when they, when they weren't serving the purpose, they would create more and more and they would heap more on top of the people. And every time they would get close to maybe, maybe they're doing some of them right, they would find some reason why they weren't. And there's another one and another one and another one. This is why he says in, in Luke 11, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Saying you're, you're loading on all of these burdens. You are crushing people. And this weight is getting heavier and heavier. And Jesus says to them, you don't have to do that. He says in, in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But did they understand this? Do we understand what he's actually saying here? Look in in Mark 7 again, in verse 17. It says, When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? So this is kind of an exasperated statement from Jesus. Like, you you also don't understand? They've gone away from the crowd. They enter into the house. It's a smaller group of people now. And the disciples, as they often did, said, Hey, Jesus, we don't understand what you were just talking about. And we can look at that and through the, the lens of the resurrection and all that, we can look at that and be like, yeah, come on, disciples. How do you not get this? But we have to ask the question, do we really get this? Take that, that passage I just read in Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hey Amen. That's got all my favorite words in it. Rest, gentle, easy, light. Got it. Like, that's my kind of religion right there. And I'm going to follow that. And you're looking at the disciples and be like, don't you understand what he's saying? You don't have to do all of those things. Finally, like you don't have to live like that under their microscope. You don't have to worry about those stuffy, judgmental, religious people anymore. You're free from all that stuffy religiousness and, and self-righteousness. And so you don't have to do any of those things. You're, you're free. And many people in our culture take that and run with it. And we look at passages like that in Matthew 11 and we see Jesus refuting the Pharisees and we, and we understand it to mean like, okay, well see, it doesn't matter what you obey anymore. Like the commandments, all that law, all that stuff, like that's out the window. You don't need that. Like Jesus has set you free and like we think of it like just running through a, a pasture and like whatever you want to do is fine. And many people do that. And it's not only in our culture, but it's in our churches 
Like, it doesn't matter what you do. Like, you do you. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you do it with love and with sincerity and with a positive, with positivity. It's seeping into even the evangelical church. As we just promote, like, just, ah, you know what? Nobody's, nobody's perfect. And we talk about how Jesus is full of mercy and grace. Therefore, you be you. Whatever your desires are, they're good because God gave them to you. Whatever makes you happy is good because God wants you to be happy. There's only one problem with that. It's not true. And Jesus explicitly states that it's not true. Jesus says that our our works and our obedience is actually the evidence of our love for God and our belonging to him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments And remember what Jesus says earlier in this passage in in Mark 7, in verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He isn't saying that the commandments of God are void or in vain. He's saying that your man-made ways of achieving them are. And in fact, when Jesus talks about the law it seems like he's the one piling on. Like we talk about, he was saying, hey, woe to you, scribes and lawyers. You, you, you pile on these burdens on the people and you don't even lift a finger to help them. But if you read the Gospels, there are times you're reading it and you're saying, I, I don't, I think Jesus is the one who's piling on. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You call that easy? Light? And he goes on to clarify. He talks about adultery. He says, yeah, 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 don't commit adultery, but also do not have lust in your heart. Not only are you to not commit a murder, but you also should not be angry. Not only should you love your neighbor, but also love your enemy. And your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't know about you, but that seems harder. That seems definitely harder than the checkbox that I had created for myself. Tell me again how your yoke is easy and your burden light, Jesus. And those are the kinds of things I think are swirling through the minds of the disciples when Jesus says things like this. And when they ask him, he says, don't you understand? And I I can feel the weight of the disciples are like, no, we don't. I think that's obvious. We have no clue what you're talking about here. How is it possible that your yoke is easy and your burden is light? 
And yet our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And not one iota or jot of the commandment or the law will pass away until it is fully accomplished. So Jesus explains it to them. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Gross. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Right? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, I know that if you've been in church for any time at all, you hear something like that and you say, yeah, got it. No, I get that. It's an issue of the heart. Jesus is after the heart. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. Like, I got it. But do we fully understand this? Do we understand what Jesus is saying here, that it's not what is outside, but what is inside that makes a person unclean? Let me ask you to, let me ask you this. Do me a favor and picture a person right now that you see as far from God. Just like the person that if they walked in here on a Sunday morning, your jaw would just hit the floor. Why don't you just picture that person right now? What makes it so shocking that they would do that? How are you judging that or determining that? Maybe it's the way they look, the way they act. I would venture to guess that for most of us, whoever that person is, what I would argue is that the reason you have determined that they are farther from God is in how they measure up against your checkboxes. And so we look at people and we say, oh, okay, well, these people, like this person here, like I've been talking to my neighbor and I think they're really close. Like I just need to invite them a few more times and And if we're really honest with ourselves, like, why do we think they're close? Because they have a nice yard, good family, they're honest, hardworking. You're thinking, yeah, I mean, they do all those things. They're just good, just good folks, just good people. And they already vote Republican, so they're almost there. I know, when I say it, I'm willing to look foolish so you can agree with me. But listen, we do that, and then we look at other people and say, oh, they're far. Why? Because they're addicted to a substance. They've been divorced four times. Like, do you ever think, like, when you, when you picture those people and you say, you know, look, I, I look at these people, and I'm like, oh, some people are just so close, and some people are so far. Like, if you ever notice, like, a lot of times the people you're picturing as far from God are the ones that are closest to Jesus. And the ones that he determines are far are the ones that the culture looked at and said, oh, they're so close. So how do we deal with this? Do we really understand? Well, here's a couple of things we need to grasp. One is that being clean before God is a thing. It is required. No one who is unclean will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So when Jesus is saying this, he's not saying there is, there's no clean and unclean. It's just whatever. Like every, anything's good. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying they're right that obeying the commandments are necessary. They are right in the difference between clean and unclean, that we need to be made clean before God. They're just attacking the wrong source. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and all of these things. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The evil comes from inside, not outside. See, sin is real. Being unclean is a real problem that if not addressed, we will be lost for all eternity. And so the religious leaders had that right. They were thinking, we need to be clean before God. A lot of their ceremonial rituals were to demonstrate that. And Jesus is saying, they're right in that. But they're wrong in where the defilement comes from. Listen, the goal of the Christian life is not to be kept away from all the evil out there. It is to be made clean of the evil that is in here. That's what we are called to. All evil flows from the heart of man. That's what we call in in theology the, the depravity of man. That sin is not defined by behaviors. It is defined by a heart that desires those behaviors. And it infects everything. Like Take stealing, for example. The act of stealing is not what makes a person unclean. It is the desire to have something that does not belong to you, which reveals a lack of trust in, in the heavenly Father who cares for you and provides all things for you. And then stealing is just, the, is just what flows forth from that heart, from that diseased, unclean heart. This is what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. He's not piling more things onto it. He's, he's just digging deeper and saying, look, murder isn't the turning point. Murder isn't where you went from clean to unclean. Where you went from clean to unclean is the anger that is in your heart that leads to the murder. Adultery, the affair, isn't where you went from clean to unclean. You didn't have a perfect record when you committed adultery. It's the lust that was in your heart that defiled your heart that led to adultery. And for one, it leads to adultery, and for another, it doesn't. But it is the same defilement. Out of the heart come all kinds of evil. And this is shocking news for many people in our culture and in our churches who believe and want to believe that humans are fundamentally good. See, the humanist perspective, which is predominant in in our secular culture, but I would say that it is rapidly growing in the church, that worldview says that people are fundamentally good, but they succumb to kind of evil influences. So like, ah, they're, they're really a good person, but these other things happened to them um, that, that were bad, and so they kind of became, they kind of fell into that. And if you don't believe me, look at any time a celebrity or anybody gets arrested, and I mentioned this a couple of times, but it's so clear that if they get arrested for something and, and everyone's shaming them and saying how horrible what they did was, they almost always, almost without exception, in their apology, will somewhere in there saying, that's not who I am. I did this thing, but that's not who I am. I'm, what they're implying is I'm a good person. I just made a mistake. I'm a good person. I just fell in with the wrong crowd. But let me ask you, 
If everyone is fundamentally good, then where does this bad crowd come from? Where do these bad influences come from? If they're fundamentally good, how did, how did they go wrong? Who influenced them? See, the idea that people are fundamentally good makes no sense. I, when I've shared the gospel with people, a lot of times I get a pushback of, well, if God is real, then how come there's so much evil in the world? And I honestly think that the answering the question from the other point of view is much harder. If we're all there is, like it's just human beings and then and nature and just natural law, and we are fundamentally good, how does evil get into that? If you and I are fundamentally good and we are just like at our core, we're good people, then everything should be good. But it's not. Creation is broken. Christianity unequivocally states that we are not fundamentally good. We were created good, but the infection of sin has fractured all of creation. And that infection flows from our heart. It's not something that happened to us. It's something that came from us. This is why no number of fences or checkboxes can protect you. This is why no number of things that you can say, okay, I'll go to church, I'll give this much, I'll do this thing. None of those things will help you in this because you, whatever you do, you still have the source of defilement inside of you. I'm realizing this is a super cheery sermon so far. As usual, hang with me. I mean, think about it this way. When I was a kid... I would run around, I'd play or whatever, and I defined, um, like, I would wear the same clothes every day for several days in a row until my mom would be like, are you still wearing the same shirt? And my response would be like, yeah, it's clean. It's not dirty. And my definition of dirty was I didn't spill something on it, right? If I could go three days, which would have been a miracle to go three days without spilling something on it, but if I could, I would look at my shirt and say, it's clean. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever taken the, a shirt that a 10-year-old boy has worn for three straight days. I would not define that as clean, all right? Like, my entire house often smells like a big wet dog, and we don't own a dog. So it's not clean. The reason it's not clean is the source of defilement is not out there. It's in them. It's coming out from them. That's what makes the shirt dirty. And that that cleanness, that, that thing that's on the outside, all that stuff, what it looks like is meaningless because ultimately it is already defiled. And that's why Jesus said to them, the woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. See, the issue isn't their desire to be made clean. It's that they're going to the wrong source. The issue isn't, hear, hear this, the issue isn't that the Pharisees have too high of a standard. It's that their standard isn't high enough. That's why he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom. He's saying that because just like a, a shirt isn't just dirty because whether you get stains on the outside, but it's actually dirty from within. What the Pharisees are doing and burdening all those things is just trying to wash the outside of the cup. And Jesus is saying, you know, the whole thing's got to be clean. You got to be clean from the inside. Those behavioral check boxes they devised were too low. It's like painting over water damage on a wall or painting over rust on a car. 
So Jesus says you don't need better behavior modification. You need a new source of the mind and the body. You need a new heart. Let me try this. A Pharisee, a humanist, and Jesus are all standing in a field one day looking at an apple tree. And as they're talking, they're saying there's a group of people coming along and they're expecting to see orange trees. They want to see oranges. And we've got this apple tree. What are we going to do? And so the Pharisee says, I, I got this. I'm going to run really quick. I'm going to buy a bunch of oranges and I'm going to come out here and I'm going to take all the apples off of this tree and I'm just going to put oranges up on the branches. I'm going to duct tape them and rig them up there. And it'll be awesome. And when everybody walks by, they're going to look at this and say, wow, what a beautiful orange tree. Look at all that great fruit. The humanist says, ah, that's, that's too much work. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to convince all of them that these apples are actually oranges. Because after all, that's what was produced out of it. Like this, this is what was supposed to happen. So as people come by and they say, hey, aren't these apples? We're supposed to see oranges. I'm just going to tell them like, no, 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 they're actually oranges. And I know that. I know that they are. And I know that they're good because that's what just naturally came out of this tree. And Jesus looks at it and says, I'm going to plant a new tree. That's what the gospel is. He takes the old heart, the old nature, the old tree that produces the wrong fruit, and he plants a new tree, and he brings new life. Ezekiel 11 says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. He makes you new. He replaces your heart. And church, I'm afraid that we have forgotten that that's what actually happens in regeneration and being saved. That when we go back to that idea of who we see as close to God or far from God, we forget that it is an act, it is a miraculous act no matter what. That we are spiritually dead. This is the time of year where you're driving down the highway and you see a bunch of dead deer on the side of the road. Which I think we can all agree is sad. For one reason or another. Some of you, for some of you, it's sad because you've watched Bambi too many times and it makes you sad. For some of you, you're just sad because you're like, ah, oh, that would have been good meat in about three or four years. And so you're just bummed that it got taken out early. But either way, it's sad. But as you're driving down the road, like I have never once heard my kids as they look and we see like a dead deer on the side of the road. I never once had one of my kids ask me, how dead was that deer? Was that deer, is that deer really dead? Like dead, dead, dead? Or just like kind of dead? They don't ask that because dead is dead, right? Like you can be close to death. Like if they see it struggling around. Oh, that's sad. I don't even want to go to there. But if you see, like dead is dead, right? Like we're not going to look at it and be like, oh, okay, well that one's super dead. That one's seventh level dead. And that one, like I've never seen that level before. That's really, really dead. Dead is dead. And when we are, what the Bible says is that we are spiritually dead, 
We aren't clinging to anything. We're not gasping for breath. We're not asking and saying, would you please revive me? We are dead. And God takes our dead stone hearts and gives us heart of flesh. Hearts that love him. Hearts that desire him. This is a miracle. He secures our salvation by his work, by his righteousness, not our own. When we forget this miracle, we go about setting our checkboxes and looking at other people and determining where they are in this journey. But he secures our salvation by his work. And even when they asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Do you believe this? In John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the key to obeying God's commandments is not in mustering up enough willpower. It's not in creating enough boxes to make sure that I obey all of his commandments. The the key to it is abiding in Jesus who perfectly fulfills all of those commandments. Just clinging to him and following him and submitting to him. That's why Jesus famously says all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love God and love others. Because if you're abiding in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, walking with Jesus, communing with Jesus, and if you see others as your brothers and sisters who are either doing the same or desperately in need of the same grace that was offered you, you won't need to quibble over what is lawful on the Sabbath. Those questions won't have to enter your mind. I think I can say with great confidence what God wants are people who so love his word and time with him that they have quiet times. And if you are so consumed by him and just saying, I just need to be with you and I need to read your word and I want to be with you, then you won't ask, wait, how long does a quiet time need to be? Does it count if I did two yesterday? Do I have to do one today? You won't ask those questions. They won't enter your mind because your desires and your heart have changed. He wants people who so love to worship him with their brothers and sisters that they prioritize worship with their church family. He wants people who so love one another because of how they were first loved by him that they sacrifice time and money to serve one another and to be with one another. He wants people who so rejoice in the fact that God loved them while, he, while we were enemies of him that they relish the opportunity to love their enemies and point them to Jesus. And this gives us a key then of how is this light and easy? It's restful and light and easy because when the heart is changed, the actions flow naturally. When that apple tree becomes an orange tree, it doesn't have to work to produce oranges. It just happens. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul isn't saying to work on these things. He's not saying be more loving, be more peaceful. He's saying that these are the natural outflowing of someone who is abiding in the Spirit. Let me, ask you, let me ask you this. How many of you have, um, how many of you have ever paid, prayed for patience? 
Great. And the rest of you are liars. That's fine. I didn't even ask first service to raise their hands because I knew they were just going to hide. I was like, don't even raise your hands. Second service, I expected more out of you, but that's all right. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've all prayed for patience. I have prayed for patience so many times. But like, so you're standing in the grocery line and the person in front of you, have you ever been stuck behind the person that has a stack of coupons? Which may be my wife, all right? Stack of coupons and then beep, beep, beep. And then one's like, oh, this one doesn't read right. I don't know. And it's like for 12 cents off. But they're like, we've got to find out if this coupon is accurate. I'm like, I'll give you the 12 cents. Like, here's $5. Just go. And you're just waiting there and waiting. And in that moment, even if I'm thinking about it, I might say, God, just please give me patience right now. Do you realize that that's the equivalent of looking at an apple tree and just saying, God, would you just make that apple an orange? Just turn that one apple into an orange. What we should be praying is that he changed the whole tree. And the way he does that is we abide in him. So what if instead of praying, God, give me patience, I prayed, God, make me abide in Jesus. Because if I'm abiding in Jesus, then the fruit of the Spirit will flow forth. Because if I'm abiding in Jesus and I'm standing in that line and I'm thinking of him and I'm thinking of what he has done and how he has loved me and how he has rescued me and I'm thinking about him and how he had compassion on the people and I'm just walking with him and trusting him in that, then I look and, I, and all of a sudden I don't have to ask questions about should I be patient and is it patient to like offer to help or like to just kind of push their cart along? Like where's that line? I don't have to ask any of those things because all of a sudden what's flowing out of me is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. All those things are just flowing out of me because I'm abiding in Jesus. And when you do that, it is so freeing. It is so much better because now all of a sudden I don't have to measure every word biting my tongue. Have you ever talked to somebody that you're really upset with and you're really frustrated and you're really angry with and you just bite your tongue and you're like, okay, I cannot let my real feelings come out. And so you're so upset and you're so frustrated and they come up to you and say, hi, how are you doing? You're like, hi, I'm great. It's doing great. And then you walk away and here's what's really disgusting for us as Christians. Walk away and be like, hey, I did great. No, you didn't. Because it wasn't the harsh word that you wanted to say to them. It wasn't actually saying the word that would have made you unclean. It was the desire and the anger in your heart that would produce it. And it's exhausting to live like that. And so when Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and you don't have to live like that anymore, I will make you new. And actually the righteousness is much greater But that's okay because I'm giving you a new heart and I am walking with you and I'm showing you how to do it and I'm doing it through you. You just cling to me and we will bear incredible fruit. See, to keep trying to cover up the bad fruit that is burrowing inside of me, that is flowing from a heart that is defiled, like that is exhausting. You can only keep that up for so long and it will make you bitter, and it will harden your heart toward God. But so also is the humanistic Christian, quasi-Christian view to change God's law and to create our own morality and to say, well, surely God didn't mean this. You know what? I've got, I've got a better way. We're just going to call this good. Even though God calls us evil, we're going to call it good, and that'll just be so much better, and everyone will be so much 
happier. And you will try to be the source of your own morality, the source of your own joy, the source of your own happiness, and it will end in destruction. Only by being made new can you find joy and freedom and life. So as we desire to abide in him and follow him, I just want to answer the question of what happens when I don't desire that? What happens when I'm in that situation and I feel that frustration coming up and I know that that's what's coming up in me and I I rightly identify that like, okay, even though I smiled and and said, yeah, I'm good, I walked away knowing that, that what was going on in my heart Am I being fake by smiling at them then? Here's what I would say to you. Praise God that that battle's even going on in your heart. Praise God for the grace to recognize what was coming out of my heart right there was dark. And then repent. Just repent. Turn to him. Receive his forgiveness. He's not shocked by that. He knew the condition of your heart and my heart when he became flesh and dwelt among us and laid down his life for us. He has given you a new heart. And so those actions, yeah, then you act. So yeah, no, the answer isn't like, well, I'm just going to be real. So I feel angry, I'm going to say whatever's on my mind. That's not actually real. The Bible says what's real is that he's given you a new heart. You are not your old self. You are a new creation. And so when you give into those impulses that are in all of our hearts and we battle against those, we're actually forgetting who we really are. And so I would encourage you in those moments to step out in faith. Trust him in those moments. You feel that coming up inside. You say, you know what? I'm not cheerful right now. I'm kind of giving begrudgingly or I'm grumbling and complaining about this. Like, I'm going to confront that. And I'm going to repent of that. And God, please, would you make in me a clean heart? I know you've already done this in me. And you are continuing to shape me in this way. And so Jesus, I, I repent of this. And I'm going to act in faith and obedience and trust in you that what you have is better. If you've ever had a conversation with me about sinful patterns and behaviors in your life, then this will sound familiar to you. Because when someone comes to me and they know that you're saying, I'm doing this thing. And I know I'm not supposed to do this thing. But I can't help myself. What I will always say, I will never say to you, well, just stop doing that thing. What I will say to you is, I want you to trust Jesus that what he's offering you is better than that thing. I want you to trust Jesus that what he has for you is better than the high that you get from that substance. I want you to trust Jesus that what he is offering you in a relationship with him is better than this human relationship that is destroying you. I want you to trust Jesus that what he has for you here is better than this thing that you are pursuing. That's acting in faith, trusting him, obeying him, submitting to him. Let's not settle for the behavioral checkboxes. Let's stir one another up. And the beautiful thing is the victory is already won. It was won on Calvary and in the empty tomb. The beautiful thing is God doesn't look at you the same way that you do. You think your worth is defined by what you produce and what you're able to do for him. And God looks at you through the lens of what Jesus has already done for you. 
And there's no one to condemn you. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember in John 8, the woman caught in adultery and she's about to be stoned and Jesus chases all of them off and he looks at her and he says, where is everybody? Is there no one left to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So as a church, what would it look like to pursue that kind of real transformation and that kind of real freedom? Pursue that in boldness and in freedom. Abide in him, submit to him, obey him, take his yoke upon you. Give up your old yoke of trying to prove yourself to everyone else. Give up your old yoke of pretending to be someone that you aren't. Give up your old yoke of moralism. Give up your old yoke of defending yourself and justifying yourself. Give up your old yoke of trying to make yourself happy and trying to create your own meaning and take his yoke upon you. Abide in him. He is lowly in heart and he will give you rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, I so empathize with the disciples and not fully understanding because, God, this is a battle in me daily. For those of us in this room that belong to you who are your children, God, I pray that you would remind us constantly of who we are in you, that we are who you say we are, that we belong to you, that we have been justified and redeemed and made clean because of Jesus Christ and that we would cling to him and abide in him and submit to him and trust in him. And for those who have not yet found that freedom, God, I pray that they would not walk away from here and harden their hearts to what they've heard. That they would not continue to pursue their own paths that lead to destruction, but that they would turn and repent and see that you love them and that you meet them where they are and that you will give them a new heart so that they will be able to obey you and follow you and be your children. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.